Welcome to the 29th Cinelit Podcast. Today, we are continuing our look at the giant monsters of Filmland. We've tackled Godzilla, we've tackled King Kong, and this week we are looking at a giant of another kind. A giant in the world of stop-motion animation, and a figure that does indeed loom large over monster cinema. The incomparable Ray Harryhausen. I am your host, Adam Marsh, and I am joined as ever by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? Great, thanks, Adam. Love Ray's films and uh, looking forward to talking about them. Yeah, Ray, Ray Harryhausen like, is just part of the, the national fabric of, uh, of uh, Bank Holiday Mondays, you know, fathers showing their sons these films throughout history, you know, over the last 50 years or so. He's, yeah. um, he's been a major part of certainly British TV and British film culture in this country, more so than probably in America, I think. I would think so, yeah. I mean, he's he's big, big in the states, um, but largely among, as we'll go on to talk about, largely among um, people of a slightly older generation um, who maybe saw his films growing up in the fifties, and then went on. A lot of them went on to have careers in film themselves, and and have bought Ray's techniques and embellished Ray's techniques in the things they've done. And as we'll talk about. Uh, they've all won about ten Oscars each, and and Ray didn't. Uh, Ray was working at a time when you didn't get Oscars for that kind of thing. So uh, there you go. He doesn't need Oscars. Yeah, his, work, yeah. his work stands uh, way above Oscars. Sure. So yeah, I, I think I think yeah, you've got that sort of fifties generation that that sort of grew up on it on his early films. Um, but yeah, as you say, later on by by the late sixties and through the seventies. It was, they were the films that dads were taking their kids to, you know, and uh, on, on TV every Christmas or every Easter or whatever, you know, it's, uh, they, they are just part of the furniture. My dad, my, my dad doesn't get excited and giddy about cinema much, really, but he's a he's a huge uh, Jason the Argonauts fan. And we had Gary Raymond at Quad um, a couple of years ago for a UFO convention. And he, I, I've not seen him as a lot. He's like, oh, did you tell him? Did you tell him that uh, Jason the Argonauts is your dad's favourite film? I'm like, I don't think he cares, Dad. <laughs> but, yeah, he, he was so excited about that. Yeah, let me... Uh... Let me throw in a quote there, Adam, because I just mentioned that Ray had, had not won an Oscar, and, and whereas a lot of the people he influenced have won a, a wheelbarrow full, you know. But uh, um, Ray was given an honorary Oscar in uh, 1992, and it was presented by his old mate, uh, Ray Bradbury, who we'll, we'll talk about their friendship, I'm sure. Um, and uh, Ray Bradbury called Ray Harryhausen up on stage, presented the award, gave a little speech about him. Ray Harryhausen typically didn't say very much, but then he shook hands with Tom Hanks, who was comparing the uh, the evening. If if you watch this on YouTube or wherever, um, you can see Hanks has quite a, a, a lengthy conversation with Harryhausen as they're sort of uh, going off stage. And you can't hear what they're talking about, but you can sort of imagine, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's Tom sort of bowing down and, and say, oh, yeah, man, I love your films, you know. And then he turns back to the audience and uh, Tom Hanks says, um, some say Casablanca, some say Citizen Kane. I say Jason and the Argonauts is the greatest movie ever made. Wow. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Tom Hanks. That's that's a great endorsement. There you go. There you go. Well, you, you mentioned there Ray Bradbury and um, that kind of like, like a trio of friendships there with Ray Bradbury, Ray Harryhausen, and, and uh, another uh, a key figure in monster cinema, um, Forrest J. Ackerman, who Forrest are all Ackerman, yeah, yeah. friends from like their late teens all through their lives. And yeah. all, all three of them had major impact on, on the visual identity of monster cinema. Definitely. They, they really sort of started fandom as we know it today. You know, uh, Forry was hugely responsible for that all his life and uh, you you now see people like Guillermo del Toro who've uh, you know Guillermo's got this these these two huge houses that are packed with the uh, sort of monster memorabilia and stuff and uh, Forry Forry was doing that you know way way back his house was like that and so um you know, you have these people now who've who've made very successful careers out of what they do, and they're collecting lots of uh, sort of movie memorabilia and posters and figurines and things, and uh, they can now live that Forrest J. Ackerman experience. It's fantastic. But yeah, Ray Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen were right there with Forrie 
as he was sort of formulating all this stuff. And as I say, more or less creating what we know today as a fantasy film fandom. Yeah, I mean, Forrest Jackman obviously was the creator of Famous Monsters of Filmland, a yeah. very influential <laughs> magazine that ran for many, many years. But Ray, Ray Bradbury, obviously a writer, a, a titan in the world of writing, I guess, particularly like science fiction and fantasy fiction. Yeah. Now, he met Ray Harryhausen in 1938, and I'm not sure if it was actually at a screening of King Kong or if it was they, they bumped into each other and were talking about it somewhere. But they, they realised that they were sort of kindred spirits, you know, and uh, they actually signed, signed a pact when, when they were sort of in their, in their sort of mid to late teens to say, A, we'll be friends for life and B, we'll love dinosaurs for life. <laughs> it's not a hard pack to make, is it? You know, I mean, <laughs> the first the first pack possibly, but the second yeah, pack, yeah. you know, loving dinosaurs sure. is fine. Who, who <laughs> doesn't? Who doesn't? Yeah. So, so like, yeah, Ray Ray started out fairly fairly early in his in his life, knowing pretty much what he wanted to do. He mm. wanted to be involved in this kind of cinema. Yeah. His, well, this this team. this was after after seeing King Kong. His yeah. auntie took him to see Kong, and. Um, he 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 just couldn't believe what he was watching. He did recognise, you know, he, again, he would have been probably sort of 13, 14, 15 or something. And he was canny enough to sort of know what he was looking at there. While everyone else was sort of marvelling, oh, there's a, a giant gorilla at the top of the Empire State Building. He was too, but he also sensed how how it had been done. He sort of recognised, oh, it's 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 model work of some kind, you know, and 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 set out trying to sort of find out more about it. Um, actually, contacted Willis O'Brien, um, the the guy who who sort of masterminded the effects for Kong, and um, and sent drawings and things to him over the years. Ended up working for him, as we'll we'll talk about, and um, and then struck up this friendship with Ray Bradbury. And um, by that point, and we're in that we're we're still in the late thirties here. Um, Ray Harryhausen is already starting to make his own little amateur stop motion movies at home some of which again you can see online if uh, you know there are little clips and things that we'll point out to people as as we go along uh, one of the very early ones is he'd got this very ambitious plan to make a stop motion film called um, evolution of the world and it was going to be like the history of dinosaurs um from from the birth of the dinosaur right through to their demise and um he managed to film an absolutely fantastic dinosaur fight sequence, which, you know, is, and it's in colour as well. This is sort of 1938, 39 or something, you know. So, yeah, he's still only a teenager at this point, but the, the talent is already there from, from day one, you know. He said that he scrapped plans for the film after filming this short sequence because he went to see Fantasia, the Disney movie, and he saw the uh, the dinosaur sequence in that, and he thought, "Oh, they've they've nicked my idea. They've they've done what I was going to do in in cartoon form, you know." And and um, he abandoned it and just moved on to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, you obviously had that drive and that passion fairly early on. He was doing whilst he was at high school, he was doing evening classes. <laughs> at high school he was in evening classes in photography and art direction and editing and things like that yeah. so you obviously you're obviously a driven person fairly early yeah, on yeah. and again you get all the stories that that often happens when you talk about artists like ray where his family were very supportive as i say his auntie took him to see king kong he he, he knew nothing about it you know um he sure did after seeing it but uh, mm-hmm. people were buying him cameras and things as, as christmas presents and and um, as Ray Bradbury has pointed out, um, Harryhausen's mum and dad were, were so helpful, not just supportive in a sense of, oh, you know, we love what our son's doing, but actually joining in. His dad was a carpenter and would make little miniature sets for him. And his mum would sew costumes for, for the sort of early uh, puppet characters that he was using. So uh, in in things like the Mother Goose films that he did in the 40s and things like that. So they were actually a hands-on family. You know, it was, it was you know, the, the, the kids doing all this great stuff, reinventing special effects in the cinema, you know, 
not that anyone knew at that time, but his mum and dad are sort of chipping in as well. It's great, you know. So he 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 went to um, he joined the army and worked uh, during the war and uh, had the remarkable uh, experience of working underneath uh, a colonel, Colonel Frank Capra. Indeed, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> must have been a wonderful life, mustn't it? You know. So he's like, you know, he's in the war. He's working as a loader, clapper boy, a gopher, you know, camera assistant. Um, under Frank Capra, which um, must have been like more school for him, really. Sure, sure. You know, how, how perfect. And obviously he, he retained contact with Willis O'Brien uh, throughout those years. And through those, through those years of correspondence, he ended up being hired to work on Mighty Joe Young, which we've, worked, we've talked about yeah, on another yeah, yeah. podcast. And to, and to take the lion's share of the work as well. Willis O'Brien at that point saw himself as being a sort of mentor and a sort of supervisor rather than a hands-on animator. So it was great for him to be able to bring Ray and a couple of other young lads in to uh, to take the the, the bulk of, of the actual physical work on that. And, and Ray in particular is largely responsible for for the the the, the major share of the animation work there and in particular on on joe himself so and, and obviously that must have been a massive <laughs> massive calling card because it's an amazing piece of work uh the animation in this one you know, yeah I, I mean I, imagine imagine what it was like for ray as well you know you've you've got to know willis o'brien over the years as a fan and you've been sending him stuff and he's been writing back to you you know so you're sort of feeling oh yeah me and willis are sort of like that you know and then he gets this job offer when he comes out of the army. Oh, I'm making a new movie. Do you, do you want to help? You know, imagine that. You know, it's like being asked to be in your favourite band or something. <laughs> well, uh, well, he, he delivered a more on that one. And um, again, I guess imbuing into Joe what would become a, a trademark of, of Ray's work, the amount of character that you get in, in, in his animation. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you fully believe, you fully buy into the characters that he creates uh, through stop motion. Um, yeah, he's he's said this himself. He's said throughout his career that uh, he always puts a lot of himself into the um, in, into the characters. And um, I, I think it was Mighty Joe Young. I'm sure he said this on on Mighty Joe Young. He'd. Um, He'd, he'd normally have a, uh, a a coffee and a couple of biscuits uh, for his tea break, uh, sort of in between working, you know. And uh, on Mighty Joe Young, he changed that and he started eating celery and carrots because he, 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 he wanted to sort of <laughs> feel vegetarian so that he would feel more in tune with how Mighty Joe Young felt. Method that's, animation. That's, <laughs> indeed, yeah, yeah. They're the lengths that he was going to, you know. And you can see that right through his career. You know, you can tell there's always a little bit of Ray in there. Right up to the point to jump right ahead to the end of his career. Um, it's been said about Clash of the Titans, his very last film, that contains scenes of the live action actors uh, people like Laurence Olivier and so on playing the gods the Greek gods and there's this whole thing in Clash of the Titans where they're actually manipulating the fates of the characters by moving pieces of them around on on a game board in on, at the top of Mount Olympus or wherever and and um, and uh, some people in fact close friends of of Ray including Ray Bradbury had sort of pointed out to him that that's you you know you're you're you manipulate little models and and tell them what to do and and he admitted it and said yeah I, I suppose it is you know so there's that element in there I think of yeah I'm I'm the puppet man but yeah there's also a kind of element which goes right back to mighty joe young and maybe even earlier i as you say adam that's a that's a great description method animation and um uh and really wanting to put yourself in these characters and he took that from what he'd recognized in willis o'brien i'm sure yeah absolutely so we move into the 1950s and he gets his first fully solo uh, project and uh, again it's it's teaming up with his old friend Ray Bradbury uh, for the beast for t- from 20,000 Fathoms uh, so it's the first one he was fully in charge of all the technical effects it's a movie that inspired Godzilla so we've mentioned it on, on the Godzilla podcast and yeah. Uh, yeah it's 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 one of the first of its kind I guess in that respect 
Yeah, it really sets the template. It's 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 the first uh, giant monster invades a city movie. Yeah. Really, um, there'd, there'd been elements of that. Uh, Willis O'Brien had done a version of the Lost World, the Arthur Conan Doyle story, in the twenties in the silent era, and that ended with a brontosaurus rampaging around London. Then, of course, you get Kong, where that happens in New York. But here, here, it's the whole story. Mm. It's not just. 10 minutes tacked on at the end, you know, it's it's pretty much the whole thing is a major American city under attack by um, a, a, a huge dinosaur or some kind of huge creature. So uh, really, really does set the template for Godzilla and then decades of monster movies ever since. And people are still making them and still being influenced by it. Yeah, absolutely. And it set, it set the template for what he would do for most of the 1950s, with one exception, where it was these monsters from the deep. We had It Came From Beneath the Sea in 1955. Yeah, which is San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco. Uh, yeah, yeah. We had yeah. 20 million miles to Earth in 1957. And we also had a little foray into uh, science, more overt alien science fiction with Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Yeah, yeah. Three three great movies there in the in, in the mid fifties, and they've all got this interesting, which I found interesting device is that they're built, they kind of like presented as documentary. Mm, the yeah, start. Yeah. So it's got this weird sort of like it's almost like you're watching a newsreel of what's been happening to San Francisco, and you know, and 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 you're retelling the story, which um, must have been an interesting device. Obviously, I'm assuming coming from the war period, that kind of newsreels of the war, newsreels of, of world events coming through it, and that device just carried over into into fiction cinema. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's I suppose, what audiences would have been used to in terms of presentation because they'd have been seeing newsreels at the cinema. So um, to get this sort of documentary style, and it was feeding into crime movies a little bit as well around that time, and you're getting things, uh, you know, films like Kansas City Confidential and stuff were coming out. Even, even Billy Wilder's uh, Ace in the Hole and films like that, you know, were all about that sort of news experience and that way of telling a story to the public. And, of course, it, it sort of died out in monster movies for years after that until more in, in the 21st century it started coming back with things like Cloverfield and some of the recent Kong and Godzilla films. It, and I, su- I suppose it's the internet that has done that. You know, mm. the, the, we're now seeing internet films in the way that the, the Ray Harryhausen films were newsreel films. Yeah, yeah. The, the um, public understanding is the same. So, uh, and he really sort of like finds his groove during this period, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, he gets the monsters down pat. He gets the characterization of the monsters uh, uh, really down well. Yeah, and and he knows what he's doing. <laughs> kind yeah, of way. yeah, yeah. And and the city backdrops are interesting as well because we we didn't mention uh, uh, Washington for um, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, and then Rome for. Uh, the Emir in uh, um, yeah. uh, 20 million miles to Earth. So uh, he's, he's established this sort of template again where he's using major, major global cities as the backdrop. So he's, he's able to use um, things like uh, monuments and he'll, he'll either use photographs of the monuments as a backdrop or in the case of Earth versus the Flying Saucers, absolutely spectacularly, he animates the destruction of the buildings. Yeah. You know, there's no big monster in that one. You, what you what you've got is flying saucers. You've got sort of dome-headed aliens in in sort of metal, metallic armor, and you've got to have the destruction of the building. So there's no monster for him to focus on in that one. So instead of that, he, he animates the flying saucers, which can't have been massively taxing, you know. But then the real job comes in. In right, how how are we going to destroy the Washington Monument? Oh, I know. I'll 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 do an animated version of it and and I'll dangle bits on wires and photograph them to make it look as though it's crumbling, you know. And the end result is is fantastic and almost unique for Harryhausen in that it's a very different sort of project for him. 
I think it definitely builds on that sort of like the idea of, of putting major monuments in these kind of movies as a, as a, as a recognizable um, thing for the audience. You know, yeah, Hong's yeah. climbing Empire State Building. You yeah, know. yeah, yeah. It takes that one step further, doesn't it? Yeah. Move forward though to 1996, and we get Independence Day, and we get Mars Attacks. Yeah. One one of which sells itself on the fact that it's going to be blowing up major global monuments. Yeah. And the other, Mars, the Independence Day, that one, and then Mars Attacks, which directly spoofs Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Yeah, yeah. So it's still current in the mid-90s. You know, Harry Housen is still a massive influence on the two big summer hits of that year. The, the, other, the other 1950s movie that sort of like, <laughs> I guess, looms large over... Harry Hosen's career is the seventh voyage of Sinbad in 1958, which yeah. kind of set him off on this sort of like strand of his work that involved like myths and legends, yeah. uh, as opposed to monsters and aliens. Um, uh, so there was, a, and this was a huge hit, 1958, um, Kerwin Matthews in the lead, and set a lot of the tone for what he would do in those later Sinbad, uh, Clash of the Titans, and in DJs and the Argonauts movies. Sure, yeah. Um, there's there's a great uh, Cyclops character in it who uh, um, gets involved in, in monster fights. Um, and that sets the model, really, for, I suppose, the scenes with Talos later on in Jason and the Argonauts. And then Harry Harryhausen returns to that sort of character with um, the Trog figure in um, the, the last Sinbad movie in 1977. And then even Calibos in Clash of the Titans. You can see the roots of all of that in this Cyclops figure here. But, of course, the big, big, big scene in Seventh Voyage is the battle between Sinbad and one animated skeleton. Yeah, I mean, again, one one is not we, enough, Daryl. No, no. I mean, that's a that's a that's a ground that's a groundbreaker. But yeah, we it, it, more we, than one. Yeah, we didn't know what was going to come later. So uh, I gather talking about myths and Harry Howes and all the sort of shifted myths around a little bit and changed them, you know, because you know he's he's a filmmaker. You know, he's not going to stick to the truth necessarily and stick to the source material. I I gather that. Rather than depicting the seventh voyage of Sinbad, this film actually sort of takes elements from the third and fifth voyages of Sinbad. So uh, there you go. But uh, who who needs the truth? You know, print the legend. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 no one's going back and reading those reading those books who are eight, eight years old in the cinema watching Sinbad. They're not worrying about. Um, accuracy are they in that no, respect no, no. but as, as you say it sets up in, you know we've got these two strands of Harry Howes and there's there's the the the, the very sort of uh, gritty newsreel like monster invade your city film but then yeah this shift into a more fantastic realm and as you say based on sort of ancient myths from from Greece or or from the Middle East or wherever it might be, and it's that that came to sort of dominate Harryhausen's um, uh, cinema, especially in in the in the final sort of decade of his career later on. We we were saying before when we were sort of running through Harryhausen's films before we started uh, recording today how. Seventh Forge of Sinbad almost fits as a little anomaly in his career because if, if that had been made in 1971, it would make sense because the two other Sinbad films follow straight on, you know. But being made in 1958, it, it, it just doesn't sort of fit, you know. It sticks out. and uh, But it's good that it does because, as I say, it paves the way for other things that came later in his career, in particular the, the, the classic Harryhausen scene, which we'll discuss later. Yeah, well, b- before we get before we get to arguably Tom Hanks's version of what a masterpiece is, um, <laughs> we've we've got a couple of other, got a couple of other films in between Sinbad's um, first voyage <laughs> or seventh voyage in this case. Uh, we have got the Three Worlds of Gulliver, yeah, uh, which was a favourite in my household. My grandma used to play that all the time. We had two versions of the Gulliver story. We had the Fleischer Brothers animated. Uh, feature and we had a live action one and we always wanted the cartoon and my grandma always wanted the live action one <laughs> and looking back I think maybe she was right <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure still not sure but maybe she was right 
Yeah, it's the Harryhausen film I've probably seen less than any other. It seemed to not be available for many years. And uh, I, I actually picked a copy up on DVD um, only last year at a film festival. And, um, and so I watched it again and fell in love with it all over again. Uh, I've not seen it since watching it on TV as a kid, probably going back to the mid-70s or something. So it was almost like rediscovering it, watching it all over again as new, you know. Yeah, again, it's it's in that... It's in that fantasy realm. It's in the the world of uh, animated creatures and human characters appearing in the same frame. You know, so again, it's it, it's giving us a taste of what might be coming in in ten or fifteen years time. And um, and it's got again one one scene that everybody comes away talking about, which is the fight with a, a sort of animated uh, alligator. I, I guess. Often the case with Harryhausen, you know, um, the, the films are all, all great all the way through, but there always seems to be this one scene in every one that everybody comes away saying, oh, that's the bit we remember, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we screened it on 35mm a few years ago now, one of the festivals um, in, in Derby, and it... Uh, I just struck me how well it held up over over the years. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's obviously and you know a film made in nineteen sixty, so it's like fifty fifty plus years old. You know, it just held together really well. Obviously, the story, you know, it's yeah, based yeah. on a novel, so it's, it kind of kind of holds together. But the animation techniques really just pop off the screen, which is I guess why Harryhausen has retained his um, his appeal throughout the years. Is that those those iconic scenes still are iconic. You know, they still pop off the screen straight straight away when you watch them now as they did back in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really impressive. So he, he works on Mysterious Island in 1961, which, again, another great uh, example of Harryhausen's work. But he was just resting, really. I guess <laughs> for his what is probably gone down as his masterpiece and uh, Jason and the Argonauts in 1963. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, most Harryhausen movies, as you just said, Daryl, have one key scene that people come away talking about. This one's got four. <laughs> uh, so you know he really ups the ante on that, where there's like at least two or three, maybe four scenes in this movie. I'd, I'd, I'd agree. I'd agree. Yeah. yeah. Now um, the first thing I want to mention here is uh, one one of Ray's early projects, which he filmed a little bit for and then abandoned, was called The Elementals. And there's a couple of minutes of footage and there's a few drawings uh, around that he did. Incredible artwork. If you get a chance to see some of Ray's art, it's brilliant. And um, yeah, he was going to do this film called The Elementals. And it was going to be about these humanoid uh, bat creatures, giant bat creatures that nested at the top of the Eiffel Tower and then swooped down and attacked Paris. And um, he scrapped it. He filmed a couple of minutes of footage and then scrapped the whole thing. So uh, there's there, there's these few shots that you can see and um, and uh, a raft of drawings. And um, uh, but then you get the uh, the, the harpy sequence in um, in Jason and the Argonauts, and nothing goes to waste with Harryhausen. There you go. You know, it's it's the elementals right there. So, uh, and what a sequence that is. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those sequences where in any other movie, that's the standout sequence. That's yeah, yeah. Here, it's probably the least impressive. Yeah, it's, 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 it's filler. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, is. it really, it really kind of feels that way it, it, alongside like the Hydra. I mean, that and the Hydra are the two that you think, okay, they're, they're okay. But yeah, then, yeah. Talos, the giant bronze statue being brought to life, uh, which just is incredible, really. That's the whole sequence is incredible. Uh, the sense of scale, the sense of size, just yeah, really, really stands out. Yeah, apparently, uh, um, uh, Talos in the myths is a, um, a a figure that stands about eight or nine feet high. So Ray said. And they didn't want to do that. Uh, they they went for the Colossus of Rhodes. That was the idea. They wanted, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got to be bigger. It's got to be bigger. And how great it is! I mean, there's so many great things about Talos in in that uh, the uh, as well as Ray's work, which is fabulous, uh, among the the best that he ever did, I think, because you're you're dealing with a sort of metallic 
creation here rather than anything organic, you know, which you're more used to with, with Harryhausen. And even already at that point you were with, with the, the dinosaurs and monsters. And suddenly here's something a little bit different, you know. And the animation style's slightly different too. He's he's recognised that he's the, the movements have got to be slower, they've got to be more deliberate. He, he can't do anything with the face because it's immovable. So all the expression has got to be in the uh, in 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 the model as it's sculpted, you know. And you've then the audience have then got to project their interpretation of what this this uh, living statue is actually thinking and what they're contemplating. And and it works. You buy it. It's brilliant. And then um, aside from Harryhausen's work, you've got the sound effects. The, the, the score's working really well over that scene. Great, sort of, again, ponderous sort of uh, slow-moving um, uh, sort of music tones over that, coupled with brilliant foley work on the, um, on the, on the sort of creaks and, and the sort of unoiled sort of feel as, as, as the, the limbs and, and bits and pieces on, on the, the figure move. And you get all of these sort of metallic creaking sounds on the soundtrack. It's just brilliant, you know. And, and again, the way Harryhausen not only animates the model, but the way it's all matted in to the scenes of the live actors, possibly um, the, the best that you'd ever seen up until that point. And then it itself got trumped later in the same movie. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole sequence with Telos running around, so like, like the, 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 the crew of the Argonauts, uh, running around, sort of on the beach is where he where t- and tells is coming, just adds to that. I mean, it, it's this the minor point of that whole sequence, but really adds to the sort of like how well, you, 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 you believe it. it. Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, you, exactly. you buy it because they're moving in the way that people would move if 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 so, if if they were faced with that. You know, it's it's brilliantly choreographed. Yeah, no, fantastic. But as you say. As you say, it is probably way, way down the list of highlights later on. Uh, <laughs> as we as we get towards the finale of the movie, where the teeth of the Hydra are thrown asunder to the ground and the skeletons rise from the earth. Once. So, so you're actually, you're actually glossing over the fact that Ray spent months and months and months animating the seven seven heads of the Hydra for that yeah. battle. You know, it's that's, remarkable. That's, that's, that, that's nothing, you know, forget that. It um, kind of is, but it kind of is, though. It kind of is. I mean, the, the Hydra is obviously a great feat of uh, stop-motion animation and the movement of the heads. Yeah. And but but again, it's, it's there to serve a purpose, and yeah. that purpose is... is to, to die so they can pull the teeth. Uh, they pull <laughs> the teeth and they resurrect the skeletons, and then you have... Seven skeletons uh, fighting um, Simbad and his uh, Simbad uh, yeah. fighting Jason and the crew. Yeah, yeah, it's it's effectively Simbad again. You know, the, I mean, yeah. this this is the thing about Harry Housen. These, you know, who's who's Harry Hamlin playing in in Clash of the Titans? He's called Perseus, but it's it's the same guy. It's it's the hero. You know, it's the yeah. sword wielding hero. So, yeah, Jason in this case, but uh, um, but yeah, I mean, if it had been two skeletons or three. We, we'd have been thrilled, you know, after after seeing Seven Void of Sinbad. You'd be thinking, oh, it's the skeleton guy again. And he's given us more. He's done two this time. No, seven. Yeah. And again, you you imagine the work that he's had to put into that. Do the maths on that. He's he's he, uh, Ray has done the maths for us actually. In an interview that I was watching uh, in the week um, uh, from some years ago, Ray said um, each skeleton had five particular points of articulation, and so he said every single frame of film I had to do thirty-five movements. Not not one like most stop motion people do thirty-five. No, and just the complexity of, ma- and also not just not just the the, the, the stop motion movements, just the, the matting it into yeah. the actual fight scenes with the actor as well. You know, yeah. it's making sure that it, that he still flows perfectly. Yeah, they did this on one or two of the films. They actually prepped that with a rehearsal using stuntmen, right. and they they get the actual cast, the people who were going to be in the film. And and they they sort of fake a fight with stuntmen. I think there are stills of this on on the set. And the um, uh, and and then once they'd sort of figured out all the moves and everything, um, 
the stuntmen came away and the actors just went through the same motions again and they were filmed mm. and Ray's then got his template to animate the um, animate the skeletons into but again brilliantly done and and how much thought went into that you know is 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 amazing and again it works probably even better than the scene we were just talking about with uh, with Talos and the guys on the beach yeah no absolutely and it's one of those one of those things where it, the, the fight scene ends and the movie ends pretty quickly because like yeah. what are you going to do you can't, what are you, you going to do after that, that? Yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. top that so yeah. let's just get out let's get out we're, and we're, we're, send people home yeah um, but but I mean there's so many great components to that scene as well um, the, the the sewing of the hydra's teeth is in itself is great because you're thinking what what's coming what what is going to happen here what what are we going to see is it going to be another hydra you know is that going to come back to life that's your first thought you know no it's some Something worse. Um, then you see these these seven mounds of earth start to, to to sort of form in the dirt, and then a skeleton head pops up, and you think, "All oh, right, yeah, it's the seventh forge of Sinbad again." And then another one comes, and you're thinking, "Blimey, what are we in for?" There's seven of these things on the way, you know. And then you get the the, the close up of all seven heads sort of staring directly at you in the audience with intent with swords and shields raised that's terrifying and then they scream twice and then they rush to rush towards us yeah the, the, those three things build and build and build the terror and then finally it's relieved and, and the relief only comes because they're not attacking us they're attacking the characters on screen you know um, suddenly we're we're identifying with the characters on screen who are being assaulted by this army of of skulls and and, and bones you know whenever he did interviews ray always um he, he often bought one of the surviving skeletons with him because a lot of his models have sort of crumbled or, or rotted over time and he spent some years making bronze versions of them after he retired so that there'd be something to, to sort of leave behind. But um, he did used to sort of tour around the UK and he actually came to Derby in 1990. And he'd always have like a big suitcase or two cases and he got all of his surviving creatures with them. And he, and it, he, he let small children sort of touch these things and handle them. It was incredible. I, I, I guess he just thought if they get damaged, they're probably going to rot anyway in a few years. So it, and I'd rather see the kids enjoying them, you know. And uh, um, so, yeah, I, I've actually handled one of those skeletons. I've actually touched one, which uh, this was 31 years ago. And, you know, I'd have been I'd have been in my late 20s then. But I felt about four. You know, it was it was great. Ray Harryhausen's there. Oh, I've got one of his skeletons. Brilliant. Um, and uh, but whenever he did uh, sort of tours, and often they'd show Jason and the Argonauts as as the movie, you know. And uh, um, and uh, one line he always came out with is um, Andrew Folds, the actor, is is one of the characters in battle um, who who gets uh, who gets uh, stabbed by a, a skeleton wielding a sword. And Andrew Folds then became a Labour MP a few years later. And whenever this was pointed out to Ray, he always just said, oh, yeah, it was a conservative skeleton. Let's not politicise, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> but after that, he, he he kind of like, he didn't do nothing because he did like, he, he works with Hammer Studios. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, the, the, the long-standing Willis O'Brien, Ray Harryhausen Dream Project, yeah, the Valley of Guanji. Yeah, yeah, we've we've jumped over as well. One that's worth mentioning briefly uh, yeah. because of its association. He and his regular producer Charles Schneer, who we've not mentioned yet. Charles Schneer is as important to these films as Ray. Um, Ray worked with the same producer all his life. Other than Ray's films, he's perhaps best known because he produced um, Hellcats of the Navy, the only film that uh, Ron and Nancy Reagan appeared in together. You said we weren't going to politicise this, Adam, but <laughs> I've, I've jumped straight back in and done that, I'm afraid. So, uh, so yeah, Charles Schneer produced Hellcats of the Navy in the 50s, and he was already working with Ray at that time. He also produced... Half a Sixpence, the Tommy Steele movie. Why I mentioned Half a Sixpence is it's based on Kipps, the novel by H.G. Wells. And I guess Schneer had done some kind of package deal on the on Wells' novels because the uh, Harryhausen film that we missed was an adaptation of The uh, First Men in the Moon, 
not not Harryhausen's finest hour, I would say. Um, uh, Lionel Jeffries is fantastic in it and steals the show. It's it's that rare Harryhausen film where the the animated scenes are not the best stuff in the movie. It does it does feel like his his heart's not quite in it on this one. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's doing it, he's working, but it's it's not it's not what he wants to do. Yeah, yeah, I think one of the one of the things that we talk about is talked about when we talk about his, his partnership with Charles Schneer is like the directors of of these movies um, had a very had a very clear instruction uh, yeah, when they yeah, get, yeah. when they signed on. This is not like any other movie that you direct. This is this is Ray Harryhausen's movie. Yeah, Ray tells you what to do. Yeah, 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 everything else is Ray's <laughs> department. He's the creative force. Yeah, as much yeah. as anything on this film. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is why we've not mentioned the directors by name so far, because they, they, they don't really matter in a conventional sense. Um, you know, they're there to do a journeyman's job, really. Mm. Um, and when you look through the list of directors, they are, they are effectively people who did that. They were, they were jobbing directors rather than auteurs, you know. Yeah. But uh, I think, yeah, we, we need to jump on to uh, One Million Years BC now and the film at Hammer, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he did, a, what, did just, is it just the two movies he did with Hammer, uh, One Million Years BC and Guanji? Well, Grandy's not a Hammer film, so oh, it's just the one. No, no, he only, he only worked oh, on on one film for Hammer. So, uh, uh, Valley of Grandy feels was, like a Hammer film. Yeah, it does. It it does. But uh, no, that was done for Warner Brothers and Seven Arts. So, uh, but yeah, it's it's the follow on from One Million Years BC. So I can see the association there. Yeah, yeah, and and they they both both films have got. Uh, um, an Allosaurus or a similar sort of dinosaur as their their sort of key monster focus as well. So, uh, well, I guess one million years BC is kind of uh, the monsters to get overshadowed by Raquel Welsh, I guess. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, um, Raquel in her fur bikini, which which um, alludes back to our podcast on the nineteen ninety four Oscars, of course, because um, uh, you've got Raquel in the bikini up on the cell wall in uh, the Shawshank Redemption, hiding the secret of Shawshank. So uh, she was the, uh, the the last, the last, the sixties representative. Yeah. Yes, yeah. But yeah, I mean, she just became a superstar overnight because of that photograph, that publicity photograph. And that, as you say, sort of took all the heat off, off Harryhausen a little bit. You know, it was, uh, uh, which is a shame because there are some fantastic animation sequences in there. Um, Raquel being carried off by uh, by a pterodactyl, the big fight with, with the sort of Allosaur or whatever, however they designate this particular dinosaur, um, uh, with the cavemen sort of coming in with the, with pointy sticks and sort of fending it off is is all, almost the, the great forgotten Harryhausen sequence. I think you know it's I I'd, yeah. I'd say that's top three, and yet wow. it's it's never talked about. No, I guess maybe maybe it is because it feels like you've got Raquel front and center. You've got Hammer as a studio. Uh, taking some of the the, the attention away, and he, it feels like it's a, a a job for hire in some in many ways, you know. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think it was again. I, I I don't think Harry Housen was particularly in love with the project, but it was, you know, Ham, Hammer Films come to you. You're a dinosaur fan, and they say, do you want to make some dinosaurs for us? You say yes, yeah. but he never worked for them again. And and they and there, there would have been opportunities because they then did. Um, uh, when dinosaurs ruled the earth in the late sixties, and um, it was Jim Jim Danforth's team that uh, that ended up taking the gig there. But I'm sure if Harryhausen and Schneer had, had sort of thrown their names into the ring, they'd have got that one. But they they just finished work on Guanji at that time, and obviously they they got all the plans. You know, they were they were looking ahead to Sinbad and so on. Um, but uh, and Ray at this point was starting to slow down because after that you get a film every four years. Yeah, yeah. Until he retired, yeah, winding yeah. down as such. Grunge is an interesting one because he just take elements from the roots of his career. Yeah, yeah. With Willis O'Brien's. Yeah. 
Well, Willis O'Brien had devised this project. It was going to be, he was going to make it just under the name Guanji in the 1940s. He devised it during World War II and, and was going to film it whenever possible. I don't know if he ever did any test footage for it. I've never seen any, but uh, I think there are drawings and so on. And, um, and then um, O'Brien got involved in the 50s with a film called The Black Scorpion, which is, which is about a giant scorpion. Um, which unfortunately they they sort of rather botched the animation on that. So in some of the scenes, you don't you don't see a, a model scorpion animated scorpion. You just get the sort of black uh, matte outline of it. So yeah, it's a bit of a rush job that one. But why I mentioned the black scorpion is it does combine combine these elements of a giant monster attack and um, the the sort of desert set western. Uh, which which O'Brien had obviously recycled from Guanji, and then Schneer and Harryhausen in the late sixties, looking for their next project after one million years BC, uh, filling time until they move on to to reviving Sinbad. They revive this old Willis O'Brien project, and they do it really well. And I think it works well. And um, as Harryhausen himself said, you know, who who doesn't love a a, a monster? And also, how how big were westerns in the late sixties? You know, this this is released around the same time as uh, as as stuff like True Grit and and. Uh, once upon a time in the West and, and the wild bunch and so on. Westerns are at a, a, a peak, you know, and uh, let's let's do one and throw throw an Allosaurus into it. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. And he, 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 again, again, the, the Ray Harryhausen of, of imbuing a character with um, uh, characterization and, and yeah, yeah. Is, is front and centre in Guanji. And, then, and again, you know, you've got jobbing director, you've got second division actors, no superstars in there, but they're all people that can come in and do a job. Well, they're basically people who can come in, and if you tell them to stand in a particular place or move to a particular place, you know, you know, they're capable of doing it. You know, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and that's what Ray Harryhausen needs. Yeah, and 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 in this one, you need the horses that do it as well. And uh, of course, the, the 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 famous scene from the movie, which apparently is a direct lift from uh, Willis O'Brien's own notes, is the the actual lassoing of of, of the dinosaur, yeah, uh, which is a terrific sequence and the one you'll always see on clip shows, you know. Yeah, and harkens back to um, uh, Mighty Joe Young as well. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Never, never waste an idea. No, yeah. absolutely not. And um, if you can get away with repeating an idea, repeat it. You well, know. it's a different generation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Movies won't be recycled again and again on TV and DVDs and, and things like sure, that. So sure. The chance of people seeing that. <laughs> Probably. <so. laughs> but yeah, so then we get into the early 70s and they go back. They go back to 1950s and they go back to Columbia and yeah. uh, get get the rights to Sinbad again, and so so we get two sequels to yeah. um, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Belatedly, well, fascinating because they they the way that they talked about Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger from nineteen seventy seven is it is not a sequel. Mm. They're very adamant that it's not a sequel. Hence, none of the actors are returning, and it's just yeah, yeah. a different crew. But yeah. uh, starting with the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, which I sat and watched last night, which is mm. fantastic. It's brilliant. Um, Brilliant. Really, really brilliant. Yeah, and uh, well, from 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 start to finish, one. one I mean, we we've been talking about highlights from from Harryhausen, and we've singled out Jason and the Argonauts as the one film that that re, that holds together as as a story, and it's peppered with with great scenes. I, I think Golden Voyage of Sinbad lays claim to being the second best in that sense, as 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 a full movie. You know, it really does work as a proper film, rather than you just saying, "Oh, there's that great." fight scene or the bit where two dinosaurs have a fight or whatever here yeah it's 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 great from start to finish and it's got a, it's got a, a clear and effective villain in tom baker yeah um, yeah like you, you know you know where you stand he's the goodie he's the baddie and then you've got all the things in between yeah. but of course this this is tom baker really before he became tom baker as well so this yeah. is this is one of the this is made the year before he gets the the gig as as uh, the doctor in doctor who well that's right i mean they 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 went and saw him in the cinema <laughs> yeah 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 
Yeah, and, and he's, he's 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 sort of known for playing Rasputin in in Nicholas and Alexandra and one one or two other little bit parts. He'd done the Mutations that year, um, sort of cheapo horror film directed by Jack Cardiff of all people. And um, yeah, Golden Voyage of Sinbad is is like the the kickstart of of his fame and his major career. Yeah, absolutely, and and, he, and he's great in it. He is great in it. Yeah, absolutely. You, you yeah. can see, you can see why he grabbed everyone's attention. I mean, the, the use of his eyes in this movie. Oh yeah, yeah. And then you show the way he does, you know, in in his career generally, he's yeah, a very yeah. expressive actor. Yeah. Now yeah. Ray Ray had moved to um, England. He'd moved to live in London in the early sixties because. Um, he he'd always had a, had a hankering to to live and work in Europe, and then um, they found on on films like uh, Twenty Million Miles to Earth and um, Mysterious Island that European settings would be ideal for the the backdrops, the, the city of Rome for one, and then. Uh, when they were looking for um, a, a sort of deserted island, you know, they found locations in Spain that would be perfect. And Ray thought, oh, this is great. I, finally, I can achieve my dream. I can move to Europe and live there. And he came to live in London, based himself in London, he effectively became a British citizen, or had dual British-American citizenship, and um, lived in London for, for the rest of his life. And... Um, Eventually, he, he got a new next door neighbour, Caroline Munro, who um, we then see in uh, in in the Sinbad movies. So yeah, they they were sort of mates for years and uh, and then worked together. Caroline Munro, I think she's a really interesting actress in 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 the sense that she's been in a Bond film, she was in the Sinbad movies. She's she's got a whole range of different uh, films in her career. For someone who is often dismissed as a as a a, a hammer. Yeah. Well, well, she she was she was a sort of typical traditional model turned actress, you know, with with all all the connotations of that, and and uh, and she 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 is one of the people who actually transcended that and gives genuinely good performances, as you say, across a range of films as well. And she's she's ideal for this. She's ideal for the world of Harryhausen. And I think what makes Golden Voyage of Sinbad stand out is you you've got these. Um, you know, they are sort of cipher characters in a way. They're there just, just to sort of walk on and off in between the monsters. But you've actually got people with genuine character in their faces there and people that can hold the audience's attention. They're not going to win any Oscars or anything, but then neither was Ray, as we've said, you know. And uh, But they're people that are doing a better job than you normally get in a Ray Harryhausen movie. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you got like um, the the actor who plays the 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 drunken son of the bar owner guy. He, he was so good. They brought him back for Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but again, to 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 get onto this idea of uh, you know the the scenes you talk about on your way home. You know, Harryhausen famously had um, when when they'd animated the octopus in. Um, it came from beneath the sea. He built an eight-armed octopus, eight-tentacled octopus, and he realised it was going to be very expensive and time-consuming to animate eight tentacles, so he cut two off. Yeah. And, and we come back to this six-limbed idea with um, the idea of Golden Voyage of Sinbad. It was originally going to be a, an Indian-based movie, and so the remnant of that is you get the goddess Kali in statue form comes to life wielding six swords and again what what a fight sequence that is yeah it's another one of those ones where it blends the sort of like the the awe-inspiring animation (laughs) techniques of animating six arms moving at the same time and and a fight sequence yeah really well done Again, the, the funny story on that is that um, they, they did the same with that as they did with um, Jason and the Argonauts. Like I said earlier, they got stuntmen in to uh, sort of act out the parts of the skeletons so that the cast would know um, where to sort of wave their swords around, you know, and then they went and filmed it. In this instance, they actually tied three stuntmen together with a belt. <laughs> so you've got this six-armed sort of 60 stone monstrosity wandering around the set trying to not not to bump into things and they 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 sort of choreographed it all 
for the sake of the actors, Ray, Ray knew what he was going to do, but for the sake of the actors, they choreographed it so that they got a six-armed figure to look at. Yeah, they, they tied three stuntmen together. <laughs> Imagine, I don't, I, I wish footage, I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see that on a, on a DVD or Blu-ray extra or something, you know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure not that any footage of that has been long destroyed, but uh, maybe there are photos out there somewhere, but uh, um, that'd be, that'd be a sight to see. That's the great movie that Ray Harryhausen never made, you know, the invasion of the six-armed stuntman. <laughs> but yeah, that Carly sequence, However, they sort of arrived at it. You know, it was it was worth the wait because it's it is fantastic. Yeah, it definitely stands out as the like you say as the as the scene really isn't in this movie. But you get quite a lot of miniature work as well in this movie. Quite a lot of um, I guess on on um, that's what I'm looking for stuff that's not designed to stand out. Yeah, yes, yeah. It's like the monkey playing chess. Yeah, yeah. Just little little incidental details and things things that will take a lot of work to do, but yeah. they're just there as little moments, you know, things things that might look good in the stills or in the trailer or something, you know. And, and they all add texture to it and they all add flavour and colour to it. But yeah, it's I think that's a, a proof of, of a sort of maturing filmmaker in Harryhausen there in terms of it doesn't all have to be spectacle. Every time I animate something, it doesn't have to be a battle with the dinosaur, you know, much as I'd love it to be. Let's do these little quieter moments as well. Yeah, and then and then and bizarrely, they, they do stand out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Second and third viewings. And we get a call back to the masthead from Jason the Argonauts in this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas the goddess Hera was very helpful. Yeah, uh, yeah. This particular masthead is not very helpful. Yeah, well, indeed. But... Now, Harryhausen's pointed out, he, he, he said when he did his research, he realised they'd, uh, they'd made, not a mistake entirely, they sort, they sort of knew what they were doing, but they, they sort of slightly overlooked something in that in, in the Muslim world where, where the film is set, mastheads, on boats aren't really a thing. And, and he sort of realised that and thought, oh, we'll, we'll have to take it away then. And then thought, well, no, my, my films are fantasy. They're, they're, they're set in my world. I, I can do what I like, you know, and this masthead is great. And it's a callback to Jason and the Argonauts and the great one there. And we can do something different with it. We can make this one more sinister. We're keeping it. So they did. Yeah, and it, it's a great sequence. Yeah. Um, and it was a big hit, a big hit. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah, it was the the quintessential take your kids to see it. Um, and as they always said in the 70s, you know, um, uh, Caroline Munro is there as what they used to call some something for the dads. Yeah, yeah, that, that classic Doctor Who thing. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> as I say, it holds up really well as it yeah, yeah. by. And uh, yeah, it's a huge hit. And they, they, they went back to it. They went back to Sinbad straight away. Uh, with the sequel, um, but which they deliberately decided that wasn't going to be a sequel. It was just a different movie. Now, what 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 do you make of Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger, Adam? Because I'm I'm not all that keen. I have to I'm say. not. I don't think it's a very good film at all. But and, and it astounded me in doing the research that it cost about four million pound more because it looks like it does. It looks like yeah, yeah. It looks like it was done on the cheap. Oh yeah, yeah. It's got a very sort of murky mottled sort of look to it all almost, almost like they're using a lot of back projection or something at times you know i'm sure they're not but uh a lot of, a lot of it looks like it was like shot day for night yeah yeah it's got that feel to it there's something a bit weird about the quality of the visual tone of it and i can't quite put my finger on it almost like you're watching it through five layers of gauze at, at some point you know and and then the, the the animation is is as always fantastic but the problem with it is you've, you've got characters like the Minotaur, which is just a, a, a smaller bull version of Talos from Jason and the Argonauts. We've seen that, Ray. You've, you've, got, you've got this battle with um, three fire demons, which are basically a cross between the ant creatures from First Men in the Moon and the skeletons from Jason and the Argonauts. We've seen that, Ray. The original creatures aren't all, all that great either. You've got a giant walrus, which is quite fun when you first see it sort of come out of the ice. But uh, other than that, 
you've got a giant walrus with big tusk, you know, we've seen it, what are you going to do now? Not very much. And then the, the tiger itself, you know, the, again, there's, there's this notion, Ray Harryhausen animating a saber-toothed tiger as the main monstrous figure of this movie. That sounds pretty promising, you know. Um, now, as I said before, Ray... Um, always got his mum and dad to sort of help out with his early films as a teenager. And uh, when he was doing his uh, Evolution of the World movie, the one that was going to tell the history of the dinosaurs, he'd, he'd sculpted and made a model of a woolly mammoth, which he never got round to animating because he abandoned the film beforehand. But he, st he still had that woolly mammoth in his collection. He'd, he'd kept the model all these years. And... Um, the fur for that model was used by him cutting squares off his mum's fur coat. And uh, apparently she didn't know about this, but she was okay with it when she found out. The mammoth looks great. The tiger, the saber-toothed tiger in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, looks as though it's wearing bits of Ray Harryhausen's mum's fur coat. <laughs> It's not a good look for a big budget movie made in 1977. No, no, it, it, it does feel like, I mean, maybe you're talking like we're talking post Star Wars world now around the same time, isn't it? And yeah, yeah. You've got Star Wars happening around the same this, time. This, this would have come out just ahead of Star Wars, as I remember. And it's it's probably the last film of its type, really. You know, the last movie of that sort of old school, old fashioned, take take your kids to see it on, on Easter Monday sort of thing. And almost the last film of Ray's career. And it would have been sad if he'd sort of bowed out on that one. So I'm pleased that four years later, we we at least got Clash of the Titans. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about Sinbad is like, is Jane Seymour's pretty good in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, however, most of the rest of the cast are not very good at all. No. Um, so, yeah, it's unfortunate. After Golden Voyager Sinbad, where the acting really helps elevate it, that it's a little bit let down on this one. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, as you say, four years later, we get uh, Ray's swan song before retirement in Clash of the Titans, a movie which has got its own, I guess, legacy now with two two remakes, um, a sequel. And, and I think I think those sequels are, are fuel for the argument for those people who love to slate CGI and and say the old effects were the best. You know, there's your proof right there, I think. Yeah. Clash of the Titans versus Clash of the Titans. So it's an it's an interesting movie in the sense that it hasn't really got it. It tries to fashion a clear cut plot from it, and it it, it kind of struggles a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's no Jason and the Argonauts, even though it it sort of tries to be, but um, it does end up as a series of set pieces rather than a sort of coherent narrative. But what set pieces? Yeah, again, there's another one where there's arguably two two great sequences in it you've got the kraken yeah yeah that, that whole sequence but then you've also got medusa uh which is just an astonishing piece of animation well ray ray bradbury rated that as the best thing that ray harryhausen had ever animated well, there you go the ending on a high with with that i mean you've got the the snakes in the hair moving around <laughs> yeah, yeah. and again ray ray did the maths on that and he, he said there, there are i think there are 10 snakes in the hair and for every single frame of film he had to move the head and the tail of each one yeah. so it's not quite as bad as the 35 movements on on jason on the skeletons but it's getting there you know and then you're moving in the longer shots you're also moving the the long sort of serpent tail as well which is Ray's own edition that that doesn't appear in when when you when you see versions of the Gorgon or Medusa in mythology it's usually a more human form a more basic sort of two-legged form so he brilliantly added this design of the um the sort of snaking um serpent tail which is brilliantly matched up with with sort of rattling rattlesnake like sound effects and hissing noises and things and 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 the lighting in that scene is great. They they're, they're lighting that by candlelight, by flickering flame light. Mm. How do you do that when you're animating something at twenty four frames a second, one by mm. one? Yeah, no, it's, rem it's a remarkable sequence. It really is. Yeah, and arguably this this has got the best cast 
Ever Ray Harryhausen? Well, yeah, they've, they've actually got proper actors in, you know, real stars in this one. Well, Olivier for one, you know, um, uh, the the one the one person who got criticism was Harry Hamlin, who the movie tried to make into a star, and he's 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 no no worse than any other block of wood sword wielding hero, you know. The, and as I say, it, we you know if we get the names mixed up, if we call Jason Sinbad or whatever during this podcast, it doesn't matter because they're all pre- they're they're the, they're the same character. They're they're an archetype, aren't they? So he's there doing a job, and I think he's okay at what he does. He, he yeah, does he's what he's got to do. But but then you know you're you're up against this this stellar cast with with people like Olivier in it, and you you've got uh, who else? Maggie Smith's in there, Ursula Andress, people like this, and they're all they're all loving playing Greek gods as well. They're 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 getting as much out of this as Harry Housen gets out of, as we said earlier, manipulating his own figures. They're they're loving playing Zeus and people and figures like this, you know, and just being able to sort of lord it over the um, over the the puny humans. And arguably, that Ray uh, Harry Hamlin gets out outacted by uh, a mechanical owl. Yeah, Bubo, who got panned by the fans at the time because everybody said, oh, it's, it's just a rip-off of R2-D2. And then Harryhausen came out and said, oh, no, it isn't, which didn't make matters any better, you know, because it clearly is. But then all these years on, it's great that it's a rip-off of R2-D2. He's, he's a lovely character. It's it's fine. I think, I think as a kid, you like it. Uh, I think, you know, it's fine, but I don't think... I can understand why people would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, but it, but I think that's getting better over time. I, I think in the year the film came out, that was that was the major sticking point for people. Was oh, we 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 love the film, we love the effects, we love that sequence with the Medusa, we love the fact that there's a big name cast in it, we love the spectacle, but we hate that owl. Yeah. That, and then he retired and yeah, went yeah. touring to different cinemas throughout the country over the next fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I met him three times, so that that shows how far and wide he was getting around. And uh, and as I say, he then he then realised that his um, surviving models, some of which were forty or fifty years old by now, you know, were starting to rot, and and the rubber and and uh, the materials that he was using was starting to sort of. Uh, wear away and he, he he might be left with the metal armatures and things but uh, he liked showing off the full figures you know he loved taking those round to convention so what he what he started doing was he used his spare time to actually sculpt um his creations in bronze so that there will be a ray harryhausen created representation of that figure that would last for all time he obviously knew that people were interested in in his legacy by that point. And I think that came out of going around and meeting the fans. I think I think the interest may have actually surprised him a little bit. And then have, having surprised him, he thought, well, I can't leave the models behind because they're all going to um, rot away eventually. But I, I need to leave something. I need to preserve my legacy. So he did it in bronze. And I think I think there's a big exhibition on at the um, Scottish Museum of Art at the moment yeah. in Edinburgh. Um, that's on for a year, apparently. Obviously, with with the pandemic hitting, it's been a bit of a tricky one. So I'm not sure whether they're going to extend that or, or not. But it's uh, apparently it's on there until September 2021. Yeah, adding to the Harryhausen legacy. In the past few years, there've been several absolutely amazing coffee table books as well some of which are interviews with Ray talking about his career with like production stills and things. Um, I think there's a book that's got all of his production art in it, including the sketches that we mentioned for things like the elementals and some of the unfilmed uh, material. And Ray's, Ray's artwork is, is, is just stunning. You, you could hang them in an art gallery. Yeah. Brilliant pencil drawings, brilliant paintings. So if, if you want another fix of Harryhausen, when it's your birthday or Christmas, ask someone to buy you a Ray Harryhausen book because they weigh a ton, I will warn you, but uh, stick them down on your coffee table and browse through them. They're, they're fantastic to look at. Cool. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of our little jaunt into the history of Ray Harryhausen. Thank you again for joining us, Daryl. Thanks, Adam. And thank you guys for listening. Um, we will be back again in another couple of weeks. Again, I want to thank the BFI and the Quad for supporting this podcast. And we will see you again in a couple of weeks' time. Take care.